we already seen signs and we were warning in that paper that you know there are already indications that um if if something is not drastically done asap um you know uganda would, would be experiencing the resource curse in the same way as nigeria so you know back to your question now what we're dealing with is one first distinguish a country that is mature um, um from a country that is emerging and then specifically in Nigeria, we have seen the weakness of the regulatory infrastructure. We've seen issues of conflict of interest. We've seen the concerns around transparency. Um, and we've seen concerns uh, relating to the political and social landscape within, within the country. And more concerning is that issue of corruption and the lack, the absence of a strategic energy vision. On today's episode, I'm going to be having a conversation with Dr. Eddie Wafer about energy security and energy transition in Africa. Dr. Wafer is an energy law lecturer at the University of Aberdeen here in Scotland. He earned a law degree from Riverside University in Nigeria and was admitted to Nigerian Bar in 2012. He subsequently went on to obtain a master's degree in oil and gas law with distinction at University of Aberdeen. He then proceeded to obtain a PhD in offshore marine renewable energy risk governance also at University of Aberdeen. He was a senior partner at Ascendo Juris, a Nigerian law firm. However, currently, Dr. Wifer devotes his time exclusively to teaching and research uh, in Aberdeen University. His research interests include risk governance, petroleum and natural resource governance, regulatory theories in high major risk industries, decommissioning and clean energy regulation. Dr. Wifer is the director at African Natural Resources and Energy Law Network, He's also a director at Aberdeen Research Group, and he is the editorial assistant for the African Journal of International Energy and Environmental Law. I'm so grateful and delighted to welcome Dr. Wifa to the podcast. Dr. Eddie Wifa, uh, welcome to the Pan-African Experience. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And well done on, on, on such a wonderful, wonderful work you're, you're, you're doing. Well thank, done. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You know, uh, one of the first book I read uh, when I first came to the UK is The Oil Course by Michael Lewin Ross. And mm -hmm. obviously, for most people who haven't read it, it's a book that uh, explored how countries with mineral resources, you know, how those mineral resources have impacted them, you know, positively or negatively, and how they can turn it from a course into a blessing. And that pretty much brought me to the topic of discussion today with regards to energy transition, uh, energy security and energy transition. And, um, but before we delve into this, I was wondering, you know, what inspired you to go into this area of study? Because you have a background in uh, oil and gas and also uh, renewable energy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know, again, um, thank you for having me. Um, fantastic question. I mean, I come from um, Nigeria and I'm, particularly from a region known as Ogoni. And Ogoni is um, a small community um, that produces um, a lot of the oil that, that Nigeria enjoys within the Niger Delta region. And growing up, I saw how, you know, um, we will travel for, you know, Christmas uh, or holidays and um you know it was there was nothing to other than of course traditionally the beautiful you know relatives and 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 the farmlands we would go to the farm um there wasn't there wasn't light um there wasn't you know clean drinking water 
Um, there were there weren't decent schools. There weren't you know absolutely nothing people within that region could hold on to. Um, and to make matters worse, even the little farmlands that they had was increasingly um, polluted by environmental oil spills. And I remember one of those situations when um, there was an explosion um, in, in one of the flow stations not too far from my place. And, you know, if you wore a white shirt, you would basically see, you know, oil wherever you were. And this was what people needed to leave you know, the conditions people found themselves. Um, and towards nine, you know, people live with that. And, and at, at some point, you know, the community couldn't have it anymore. Um, and so they had this, um, you know, activist, Ken Sarawiwa, who then, you know, was speaking. He was an enlightened guy, had published, was, you know, lived in Europe as, as well as Nigeria. And so he was speaking against this level of environmental degradation. And, and the results, Chris, like you've rightly um, hinted, um, rather than listen and rather than negotiate, rather than prefer solutions, rather than um, design a compensation scheme that would resolve some of these issues that were highlighted, unfortunately, a kangaroo court was set up and himself and nine others were killed. Eight others were killed. And so if you just Google the killing of um, Ogoni Nine, you know, you, you can't you can't miss it. It's it's topical until this day. There are court cases and court battles that refer um to 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 that situation. Now most people know only of the killings of the Ogoni Nine, but what people don't realize is that close to two thousand people were killed by the Nigerian military under Abacha, General Sani Abacha. And that was because it, they thought killing the people will quieten um, the, 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 the agitations and the activism. But the reality is, you know, like Ken Sarawewa said, you can kill the messenger, but you cannot kill the message. It actually got worse because the next generation of activists um, felt that you know it's no longer the talking and negotiations that Ken Sarawewa was doing. They then formed militia groups, and that's why today we have um, the movement for emancipation of the Niger Delta and a number of other uh, military groups within the region blowing up pipelines, kidnapping. Um, foreign workers and even, you know, um, oil company workers. And indeed, these situations have got, gotten worse. Um, there was an amnesty program that sort of quieted down a few people, but we still know that there are pockets of these agitations and, uh, you know, military uh, militarization of, 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 of the region in, in a number of ways. So that, living through that, without going too deep, living through that, um, as a young boy, seeing all of that, I said, you know, I, I, I will study law. I couldn't stand for injustice. And that's why I studied law. And once I became a lawyer, the next thing was, where do I go from here? I had to um, go into searching and, and I found out that, you know, University of Aberdeen was one of those very top-notch schools um, that could provide me insights into the study of oil and gas. And so I did my master's in oil and gas law. But as you would see, the government, the, the society, the world indeed is, is transitioning in a number of ways and, or indeed transform, transforming its energy um, structures. Um, I then sort of did my PhD. I was fortunate to get uh, a PhD scholarship to do my PhD in offshore wind health and safety risk governance. So my research largely has been person or human centered. 
um, be it um, oil and gas, when I looked at resource governance, resource curse, and all of those things, and even energy transition, when I look at wind more specifically, with a focus on the health and safety implications of renewable energy in the offshore uh, uh, environment. Wow, that's, uh, that's really uh, extensive. And uh, yeah, you know, with regards to energy security, I was wondering, you know, you know when we say energy security, what, what do we mean uh, when we say energy security? Yeah, absolutely. Um, energy security in this sense is, is like, you know, it's like security in, in any form. If, if you say you lived in your house and, and you're secure, it means you're not particularly worried. Again, I'm using, um, trying to explain it in the simplest term because, you know, just so that whoever is listening to this will be able to catch it. If you say you're secure, financially secure, um, you know, or, or, or in, in any way, it means you don't have the worries um that people would ordinarily have um and so it means i you are secure um and if you're insecure financially or otherwise um or even energy it means that there, there are a lot of things you you you're worried about and when it comes to worrying on energy security more specifically you're particularly concerned about accessibility of of the energy um and accessibility uh, and availability of the energy. So on one hand, is it available? And two, is it accessible? Um, it could be available, but it may not be accessible because it could be like Nigeria right there in front of you, but you cannot access it either in form of utilizing it, using your money to purchase it and all of those things. And that kind of leads to energy poverty concerns that you see um, within within the the, the 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 continent. So, for instance, about 633 million people do not have access to energy, and and so once you begin to understand that, it means you know they are dealing with energy poverty. So, energy security, energy insecurity, in those sense, is really really fundamental to growth to development in a number of ways, and it then leads you from energy security to what we then call the energy trilemma, you know, which is perhaps giving it that three-pronged approach in the sense that you're looking at energy security on one hand, you're looking at also um, energy accessibility, but you're then also looking at those um, environmental concerns um, that, that may be, you know, in, that may be embedded um, within the energy question. And that's the issue of, of again, energy sustainability. But in fact, the issues have even become further complex because there's now the energy quadrilemma, which has led to a fourth strand of not just accessibility, not just availability or your, you know, the power to purchase it, not just environmental sustainability, but even the social acceptance of energy infrastructure. And so you would see that even if you're building wind turbines, you then need to put into consideration what are those factors or barriers that would enable um, or will hinder the development of that renewable energy source? And that's why you started having you start having this idea of not in my backyard um, syndrome, where people say we don't want we want the green energy, but we don't want it in our backyard because it will devalue our properties. Um, there are a lot of you know risks involved if there's a blade failure, for instance, if it's wind, and so you get that. So the question is then. The fourth question is then one of social acceptability. Is it socially acceptable? You know, it's green, but do you have people opposing to even 
um, the greenest of energy sources. So it's 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 moved on, um, and it's difficult to have energy security conversations in isolation without thinking of all these other um, factors that are indeed, I must stress, indeed um, fundamental. Well, so I mean, you know, one of the courses that you teach is uh, petroleum resource governance. And uh, like every layman in uh, Africa, including me, you know, the question we always ask is, you know, for example, in Nigeria, we have oil and gas, we have these resources. How come we don't have, you know, uh, there's always no petrol in the pumps. You know, people are queuing all the time. There's black market for petrol. And the, the country is uh, not really benefiting from this resource. I don't want to say Nigeria is poor, but I don't think it's living up to the potential, full potential of, you know, getting access to these resources. What can we attribute this to? I mean, I mean, there, there are a number of factors. So, so first, you're dealing with uh, um, a supposedly mature oil and gas jurisdiction. And I'd like to distinguish a country like Nigeria that is, um, you know, supposedly mature, I would say, Nigeria, Libya, um, some of these countries um, fall into that category. They've been exploring for oil since, say, 1960s, all right? Um, and so they should have a significant amount of experience. I like to distinguish that sort of country from a country like Mozambique, uh, Tanzania, and even Ghana, Uganda, some of these new entrants. There's, there's the need to draw the distinction because um, on one hand, a country like Nigeria is dealing with fundamental um, structural governance issues, as well as indeed regulatory. Um, from a regulatory standpoint, you would understand that it wasn't until 2021, just a, a month or two ago, that the entire petroleum industry um, regulatory regime was overhauled. And this is a country that started um, oil exploration in commercial quantity as way back was, uh, I think, 1960. Actually, in 1958, um, you know that that the first commercial lift was was done, and it's in 2021, right, that it's then overhauling its its regulatory infrastructure, and so you begin to ask yourself, what did it do for the last six seven decades? What was what was wrong? That's from a regulatory standpoint. So we saw that within the regulation itself, um, there was is there were issues of, for instance, conflict of interest. There was a there wasn't a clear um, strategy in terms of maximizing the economic recovery from oil. And then on a strong structural level, you then had those issues of, you know, corruption, um, um, mismanagement of resources, and neg deep lack of um, energy strategic planning. So there wasn't, you know, a clear vision as to this is the resource, this is where we want to get to at XYZ, um, yeah, and, and so there was that lack of vision, lack of strategic planning. Um, in, indeed, uh, corruption played a significant role, um, and there was this sort of elitist um, ideology to, you know, utilizing or, or, or mismanaging the resource. Um, I would say, and so you you distinguish that from a country like Uganda. And I've just published um, a book chapter with with uh, um, a colleague, looking at how to predict. Um, some of the issues you've, you've identified. So we looked at Nigeria and Namibia and tried to identify what are those factors that could help emerging oil and gas jurisdictions to predict um, the likelihood of experiencing the resource curse. Because 
10 years ago, Ghana was saying, you know, we would not experience the resource cost. We would not be like Nigeria. Fast forward to now, there are concerns, you know, that, that they are falling into the same trap. And so I said, you know, why don't we look at a country like Uganda that are expecting to lift oil in commercial quantity between 2022 and 2023 and see if we are able to predict um, you know, the prevalence of, 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 of the existence of the resource curse. And some of our conclusions suggest that there are already those factors that would exacerbate um, the resource cost within that country. So you need to ask, you know, fundamental questions around transparency. Um, that, that's indeed fundamental. And our research sort of suggested that there are concerns um, around transparency in, in, in that region. You start looking at things around corruption. Um, you start having um, some of those concerns as well. You start looking at some of the conflicts, you know, small internal um, or regional conflicts without within those regions. Those are the sort of things that, you know, once oil comes in, it even escalates some of, you know, the very, very little conflicts because sometimes in most cases, people then have access to the resources and then they use the money to, you know, to get arms and all of those things. So you, we, we already seen signs and we were warning in that paper that, you know, there are already indications that um, if, if something is not drastically done ASAP, um, you know, Uganda would, would be experiencing the resource curse in the same way as Nigeria. So, you know, back to your question now, what we're dealing with is one, first, distinguish a country that is mature um, um, from a country that is emerging. And then specifically in Nigeria, we have seen the weakness of the regulatory infrastructure. We've seen issues of conflict of interest. We've seen the concerns around transparency um, and we've seen concerns um, relating to the political and social landscape within, within the country. And more concerning is that issue of corruption and the lack, the absence of a strategic energy vision. So I was wondering, you know, this resource curse, uh, and you talked about the, the existing conflicts and uh, division, uh, the, these resources might exacerbate it. So is there any mitigating factors? Is there something that a country like Uganda can do now to avoid for falling into this uh, pothole, so to speak? I mean, unfortunately, one of the things that that I find lacking is within within the global um, South um, is this inability to be honest. And as 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 simple as that sounds, a lot of the governance structures within the energy sector is dependent largely on a certain level of sincerity um, of purpose. If the purpose is not clear and sincere, then you're 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 absolutely wasting your time. So what I try to advise governments, and I've you know done that in a number of um, organizations or forums and and even countries, um, is that can we first have a very honest conversation about the issues? Can can we keep everything aside? Keep sentiments? Can we have a normal, decent conversation? And that is fundamental in any relationship. Because what we are seeing, whether you want to call it resource costs or you or call it oil sector governance, what we are dealing with here is principally a relationship between the citizens and the leadership or the political elites. And if there isn't a clear conversation about that, 
then we are bloody wasting our time. So if you look at a country like Norway, that people like to use as example, they have the 10 commandments of the oil and gas industry, right? You know, it sounds, it sounds like a movie, but if you go online and just Google the 10 commandments of the Norwegian oil and gas industry, it's absolutely clear. And that's a commandment that, you know, the country sat down together to say, forget all the technical, you know, jargons and what people will put into laws and policy and whatever. Whatever we say must be hinged on these 10 commandments. And everybody from the children to the adult know that there's a 10 commandment. And, and it's like anything in life that you need those fundamental principles that we can relate to. And then we, from there, begin to structure our stru our energy governance system to feed and support and enhance um, the, the, the outcomes that we've, we've very well outlined. So, for instance, I can send you a link, um, you know, to the Norwegian um, um, oil website where you would actually see the money from oil. You can see on a per second, on a on a microsecond basis, the money is increasing. It it, it adds every microsecond. You can see it go peep 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 peep, and you see the money is increasing, increasing, increasing. I can I can open the website here, and anybody in Norway has access to it. He just needs to click on it, and he knows. Oh, as a Norwegian, this is our money. We see it adding, and if we say we don't want this relationship anymore. And we say share all our money. This is what we're going to get. Maybe an average of eighty thousand euros or eighty thousand pounds per person. So, so it's as fundamental as first having a very sincere conversation about what we want to do, what we want to achieve with the resources, and then begin to design your governance structures to achieve that. So, for instance, in a country like Nigeria, you know, we're talking about subsidies and how much we're subsidizing and how many, you know, that's not even a conversation. We we have, you know, the facts or the details. And on one hand, we are subsidizing and sometimes someone else may go, oh, no, we have not. We've removed it. And after a while, you see them come back to the conversation again and you're wondering, what are we really doing? You know, there's that sense of sincerity um, in, in, in our energy governance structure. And that's why without it, it goes to the root of all of this. Without it, we cannot plan. And if you cannot plan, you are already doomed to fail. And when I say planning, I don't mean all these uh, flowery language and policies, vision this, vision that, and people throw things here and there. I mean, actual planning with expected uh, outcomes and measures to, you know, uh, to, to check uh, um, those objectives that uh, and ensure that they are met from time to time. So, so for a country like Uganda, in these very early phases, we're already seeing, you know, when you look at the political um, scenario within the country, you can already see that, you know, there are tensions here and there. Um, look at the last elections. You know, there were concerns being raised as to, you know, do we people have do people have freedom, you know, to elect whoever they want. Uh, and those are fundamental things that need to be discussed. Uh, a democracy is not necessarily just running elections. And those are things that go to the root of your, your resource uh, 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 structures. You know, if people don't have the, the confidence that they can, you know, vote and and have their votes counted, and they can change governments at will. Um, you know, whenever they don't like uh, government, then the whole basis for even resource 
distribution and, and governance is is we, we're just wasting our time that that because there's no accountability and there are no consequences so you look at that you start looking at the role of um the watchdogs the, the you know the things like uh the 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 journalism you know things like the non-governmental organizations what power do they have can they even speak you know can they speak on behalf of the people and you, you feel that to a very large extent we don't have that sort of um, activism or stakeholder engagement in the decision-making process, then we are also um, wasting our time. So, so those are things. Then you start looking at, you know, those internal voices of concerns, are they being heard? So beyond the designing of a sophisticated governance structure, um, the principal uh, uh, ingredients are, are, you know, would be fundamentally uh, uh, missing if if you, you don't take that. So so the lack of transparency, I, I, I can't stress that that enough, and that's why you know we now have the Extractive Industry Transparency Initiative um, that was uh, introduced by by Tony Blair, and has gone uh, become really indeed popular. But you see, even countries that have adopted it have still not even made the most of it. So it's one thing to adopt it, but it's another thing to have them you know, work as, as it should. So, you know, things like transparency, things like stakeholder engagement and participation, the role of non-NGOs and if they are actively involved, um, education, you know, even educating the people so that they are aware about what their rights are and what where their resources are and where it's going, you know, that is increasingly, you know, fundamental to all of this. And then the democratic process. Once you've gone past that, all right, then we can now start discussing more substantive issues of, you know, the local content structure within the government, um, discussing things like the oil redistribution uh, processes, you know, what mechanisms do you have to redistribute the resources and how are we, you know, managing uh, those channels. Other than that, um, you know, I think I think it's just all a joke. You know, you're very familiar with the legal, as legal aspect of uh, oil and gas industry. And I was wondering, you know, from my limited knowledge in this sector, you know, in the UK, I don't think an individual can own an oil block or something of that nature. But in Nigeria, there's so many people that, you know, I believe that own oil blocks in Nigeria, you know. And mm -hmm. that boils down to that, uh, you know, accountability and governance structure, you know, what you've been talking about. You know, mm -hmm. Can this be contributing to lack of accountability as well if it becomes a personal so, business? So again, again, the problem really is not even who owns the oil block. Okay. Because you know, the first thing is, you know, um, what's the what's the ownership structure? So, for instance, in the US, if I find there's oil, you know, on in my backyard, I I basically own it. You know, it's, if 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 I own, if there's oil underneath my house, I would call a company and say, you know what, do you want to buy this? I can privately negotiate. They have a completely different land and uh, land law system. It's not the same in the UK. Okay, it's completely different in the UK. If you go offshore, it's gov it's it, the Gulf of Mexico. It's the government that owns it. But onshore, it's anyone anyone uh, who finds it or who has access or who bought the land owns what is underneath uh you know the land in the uk it's completely different the crown owns these things okay the crown owns the resources the crown owns uh what we find offshore so the first thing is when you find oil the question you need to be asking yourself is what kind of legal model do i want to use in extracting the resources you may choose a you know for instance a licensing regime in which case 
you give a company, a private company, the license, it doesn't matter who the company is. Of course, there are, there are criteria for giving a license. You know, you're looking at a company that is well-established, that has the resources, that has this technical visibility, that has the reputation, all of those things. So you tick all those boxes and then you give the companies based on a, either a bidding system, you know, the, 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 the right to exploit for the resources. What happens is when the oil comes out of the ground in a licensing regime, the oil belongs to the company. Okay, the old company owns the oil. You, you, the government, nobody has a say. Now, what happens is you then have to have a sophisticated tax regime um, or, 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 or process to, you know, take your own share of the profit um, because he owns the oil, but he will have to pay tax and all of those things for the oil he has extracted. You may choose to use something called a production sharing agreement, which is. Um, a company bears all the risk of finding if there is oil in the ground. And when they find it, they knock on your door and say, hello, government, I found that there's a lot of oil here. How do you want us to share it? And you say, oh, oh, anyway, for all your troubles, you take 40% and I take 60%, or you take 20% uh, uh, and I take 80%, all of those things. That's what you and the companies negotiate, right? Now, it could be any company. Um, it could be you, it could be me. Once we have all of that, so fundamentally is not some people like in Brazil, they have a service contract regime where basically the government calls a company to basically like you will build your house, right? A service contract system, build this house or drill this oil for me. This is what we'll be paying you, you know, monthly, or, you know, this is how we will pay you. And you have no interest, no right whatsoever. But then in that case, the government bears all the risk. Now, because resources are very thin, okay? Resources are very thin, particularly in Africa and some of these uh, the global South countries, they cannot bear that risk. So most times you would see African countries opt for a production sharing contract regime where the government will um, just, you know, hand over all the risks to the companies and um, they would, in some cases, sit back. And when the oil is found, then they would share uh, the resources. Now, this is where it gets tricky. If you do not have the knowledge, the understanding, and the negotiation power to stand before global giants, multinational oil companies to reach a deal that is long-term, it's proactive, it's visionary, you would have these companies make a mess of you. They will insert clauses that would make you, you know, lose at the end of the day, you will run at a loss. They may take a large percentage of, of the resources and give you absolutely nothing. You may have a 60-40 ratio, but in reality, they may be taking more because they then add extra cost to whatever it is they're doing. And then, you know, at the end of the day, you thought you made a good deal, but no, you didn't. So, so you know, it then makes people ask the question, before we get into oil exploration as a country, um, do we need to see how we can build local capacity and knowledge just so that we can we can we can you know at least know what these companies are doing and and follow them accordingly you know so but that's a question you know we can deal with but because of the pressure and again the priorities of these countries in in such a way that the priority is if i as the head of state i'm already taking i get a good share it almost doesn't matter what really is negotiated uh, do you understand? Yes. Because the priority is not 
the entire country. The priority is one man. And if one man sees, you know, $1 billion entering his account, he thinks that's a huge amount of money. But in reality, if he was, if the country was the priority, then he would have to negotiate something that will be suitable and he can say, within the next you know, 10 years, we will build our capacity, we'll get to this level and local content would have been developed and all of that. But the priority is not the people, the priority in most cases is the individual. And so one billion looks huge to him. But by the time he has to build roads and build schools, there's absolutely nothing. He doesn't have the system, he doesn't have the resources, he doesn't have the infrastructure. And then the companies are smiling to the bank. <laughs> wow. So it's a question of what is your priority? at the time you discover oil? And what point are you negotiating from? If you're negotiating from a place of weakness, you're gonna basically accept whatever, almost anything that is thrown at you. At you. If you're negotiating from a place of strength, like Norway, you can tell any company to go to hell because they actually have one of the strongest um, you know, oil companies in the world, Equator. Mm. Wow. So it's a question of where your priority lies. You um you mentioned the Norwegian Ten Commandments. It, can you briefly like touch on that a, a little bit? Because uh, I've been curious. It's been going around in, the, in my in my head a little bit. Just if you can briefly touch on that. He says the Ten Oil Commandments. Okay. One, national supervision and control must be ensured for all operations on the Norwegian continental shelf national supervision and control so when shell for instance when shell got their first license right back in 1958 they got a license to bore and explore for oil in the entire country without any limitations whatsoever if you read the history of nigerian oil and gas and i make a joke sometimes that if at 1958, Shell got the license to exploit for oil in the entire country, are we surprised that we then got independence in 1960, two years after? What that tells you is, although oil, the, the search for oil has started back in 1908, some people say 1906, but because of war and all of those things, they couldn't really you know, get ahead or get the, the commercial quantity they needed. But it was until 1958 that the oil was, you know, discovered in commercial and the first commercial lift was done in 1958. It was two years after that Nigeria got independence. If you think deeply, it means that, it means that, I see you're laughing. It means that they got what they wanted, right? Which was the oil and to support industrialization and all of those things. And then they handed over the independence to you. So while we were rejoicing for independence, the main, you know, the, the, the main reason for, for, for being there had been achieved because they had the license to explore for oil all over the country. So in terms of control, uh, it, the control was largely in a private uh, uh, company at that time. So. The second, petroleum discoveries must be exploited in a way which makes Norway as independent as possible of others for its supplies of crude oil, energy security. But it must be exploited in a way that makes Norway independent 
So look at a country like Nigeria, absolutely not independent. They take the crude oil, send it out, then in, uh, then import refined petroleum. That blows my mind. The idea that you export. So you're not independent. You're absolutely not independent. And even the crude oil itself is largely controlled by um, joint venture partners that are steered by international companies. And that's why you can see the foundations. You know, it's not it's not big, big, you know, it's not big, sophisticated language in a law. I'm just reading Ten Commandments. And the entire oil and gas regime in Norway is dependent on these 10. So the question is, if you look at Commandment 1, what do we do in the law to make sure that happens? You look at Commandment 2, what do we do in the law to make sure that happens? And you follow through. Let me read three. New industry will be developed on the basis of petroleum. So they use petroleum to develop other industries. So they took the money for petroleum to diversify. You know, and that's why Equinor is one of the front runners when it comes to offshore wind today. You know, they export the oil, but the entire energy from Norway, 98 to 99%, is gotten from hydropower, clean energy. The entire energy from the country. Yeah, they have all the oil, but they sent it all away and they're not burning it in their country. I mean, I mean, do you understand? So, and I tell people that in life, people have made the mistakes that you don't need to repeat. You don't need to repeat it. People have done these things ahead of you. So why not learn from them? Okay. So number four, the development of an oil industry must take necessary account of existing industrial activities and the protection of nature and the environment. So they prioritize the, the, the environment. And it's not like, uh, you know, the uh, we had an oil spill that lasted 32 days um, in, in Bialsa in, in, in Nigeria, in the Niger Delta region. And it was just spilling for 32 days. If it happened in this country, if it happened in any other country in the world, it would be top news. It's not even something people are really are losing sleep over. For 32, for 32 days, oil was spilling on cap. Look at the Makondo disaster. It was 80 something days that the oil was peeling for because of the failure of a blowout preventer. How much did it cost uh, BP? It cost them $62 billion. In compensation. In compensation, in research, in all of those things to cap it and all of that, $62 billion. The Ogoni oil spill, following from the UNEP report, after over 50 years of oil degradation, was $1 billion. Do you understand? One, one billion that was going to be funded by government, by, and the oil companies and all that. That was one billion. After 50 years of oil uh, degradation, compared to 82, 87 days or so, 60 billion. And then now we have uh, the name Bay oil spill, 32 days on cart. Begin to ask yourself, what am I missing here? So they prioritize the environment, flaring of exploitable gas on the North Sea, um, no, on major continental shelf must not be accepted except during brief periods of testing. So no gas flaring, you, you don't try unless, unless, you know, for, for testing and all of that. Petroleum from the Norwegian continental shelf 
must, as a general rule, be landed in Norway, except in those cases where socio-political considerations detect a different solution. So the 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 oil must must land on 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 their soil. Seven, the state must become involved at all appropriate levels of and contribute to the coordination of Norwegian interests in Norway's petroleum industry, as well as the creation of an integral oil community, which sets its sights both nationally and internationally. So they are saying that they are, they are oil company, start oil it was before, now Equino, must be involved at every level, at every level. So we begin to ask ourselves, how powerful have our national company, oil companies become? You know, be it in Senegal, be it NNPC, be it uh, in Ghana, you know, name it. How powerful? We are not close. In fact, we are defaulting on cash calls and we don't have the technical expertise. And and, and it's, it's indeed troubling. It's indeed troubling. How are they partnering with our universities and our schools? I was in Norway last month for a project and I was at the University of Bergen. And you see the oil companies and the universities and the school and the education system working together to solve local problems. But when it comes to you know countries in Africa, uh, they fly 10, 15 people to Houston or Dubai for a training and they go there, have fun, and they are back. And we are and they pay the money to whoever, some you know, contracted to some uh, or uh, some uh, company or training uh, academy, wherever, somewhere abroad, and then we are back to square one. It's shameful. Why are we partnering with our universities and funding that? You know, and so nine. Um, um, so if you go to eight, it says a state oil company will be established, which can look after the government's commercial interests. All right, have to look after the and interest and pursue appropriate collaboration with domestic and foreign oil interests. So you see a very powerful, you know, oil company. So they design it for that purpose. It's very clear that the priority of the state's oil company is to look at the interest of the government. It's, it, it has nothing else. It can partner, it can collaborate, but its interest, its priority is the government. So all the decisions are geared towards what the, the, the country needs. Nine, a pattern of activities must be uh, 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 selected north of the 62nd parallel, with which reflects the special socio-political conditions prevailing in that part of the country. So they take care of every part of the country and make sure that you know everybody. I mean, no way they are rich. They are rich. That's why it's a very expensive country, you know, you know, to be in. And then ten large Norwegian petroleum discoveries could present new tasks for Norway's foreign policy. So they use it as a negotiation tool, by and large. They use it as a negotiation tool, just so that you know they are able to maximize the not just the the resources itself, but they are able to make uh, uh, the most of it. So, so you know that was just to point you because some people when you say when you talk about these things, people people don't get it. They think you know you're making these things up, but these things exist. I, I will send you the link, um, you know, to the website uh, for for the for the Norwegian. Uh, uh, this thing where if you just click on the link you would see the money i mean if i, I i'm not with my the link here but if you click on it you'd see the money live yeah i think i think second. i think one issue with uh, african countries uh, especially nigeria is 
Nobody's acting on the interest of the country. Everybody's acting on individual interest, self-interest. you know, self-interest, yeah. self-preservation, which is uh, very yeah. sad. And and to some extent, I don't really blame this company. There's companies that are taking advantage of Nigeria. You know, the 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 it takes two to tango with regards to corruption. You know, I know it's easy for Western countries uh, to say, "Oh, Nigeria is corrupt. Nigeria is corrupt." But it takes two to tango. It takes two people to in- engage in corruption. So- you know. No, no, no. So let's let's face it. Let's face it. Um, all companies are like babies, right? They will take as much as you give. Don't let's not be you know fooled. They would they will take as much as as you can give. They are commercial entities. Their interests are you know completely different. It's left for you to play you know, the ball to your side. You can't be scoring own goals and expect the other team to say, no, no, don't don't score yourself. No, it doesn't happen. We can have a conversation around, you know, doing things ethically, you know, and, 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 and all of those sort of things. But by and large, it's a commercial company, it's a commercial entity. The priority is profit and they have to make, maximize those profits as much as they can. So ask yourself, isn't the same company operating in other parts of the world and making profit? They're operating. Yeah. <laughs> they're in the UK. That same company is in the UK and they're making profit under more stringent conditions. Those countries are, those companies are in Norway. They are making profit. They are in US. They are making profit. So we need to start, you know. So we have to look. Point, we have to look within more. You have to look inward. You have to look inward. Let's let's not kid ourselves. It's it's embarrassing sometimes when you have these conversations, and it's it, again. I I I try to you know. I'm I'm, in most cases, I get reluctant to speak about some of these things because it's it's depressing. It's depressing. It's it's you looking at. 50, 60 years of stupidity. We need to call it what it is. 50, 60 years of stupidity. is like any form of security. Look at Boko Haram. You watch it in that region, year in, year out, day in, day out, crippling the entire system. The same way we've watched our oil and gas industry year in, year out, only enriching a few and have people live in the most deplorable, the most deplorable situation amidst wealth, unimaginable wealth. That's not a question of law. That is just a question of people being clearly evil. And so even if the colonial masters may have left, we are worse than the colonial masters. And I don't, when people try to use colonialism as an excuse, I just say, shut up. We are worse to ourselves. How can I sit here? How can I sit here and my European counterparts and colleagues have been to more African countries than I have been to. And they can wake up 
and go to South Africa now. They can wake up and go to Kenya, you know, forget about COVID and all of those things. When things were, you know, they can go to any African country. I, as an African, I cannot. They don't need a visa. I, as an African, I sometimes tell my colleagues, some of the African countries you guys have been to, I haven't even been to half of the countries you have been to. And we're talking about looking inward to where we are killing ourselves. And I have to wait until maybe I mean, I've been in this country long enough and have become maybe a citizen or have a permanent residency before I can then easily travel to Africa. Is that not madness? So they value the passport of the Europeans and the British and the US and the Americans more than they would value my Nigerian passport. They do that. And you say, how? why hasn't African grown? Where is the role of Pan-Africanism? Where is the role of regionalism? You see these countries working in blocks, in EU, you know, working together. Because one problem affects me, it will affect us. Where is our regional integration? How do we trade with one another? How do we share expertise and knowledge? Whether be it oil, be it anything, we should be able to work together. But no. So we failed from in the, some of the most fundamental and the most basic things. Before you even start, <laughs> if you failed in the most basic things, then how can you then deal with the more complex sophisticated issues of, you know, technology transfer, patent integration, regional cooperation within the energy systems and all of that. Because if ECOWAS as a region worked together and had an integrated um, energy system where they can build wind turbines everywhere and build the, the transmission stations anywhere where the most of the resources are and sell it and give it to the other guys, we will be powered. Guys that are by the coast, they build offshore wind turbines. The guys that are landlocked, they build onshore. The guys that have more sun, they build more sun. The guys that have more uh, uh, sunlight and, 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 and land and space, we build it more and then we integrate all of them together. That's what happens. Denmark is building an energy island. It's not building it for Denmark. It's building it for Germany and all of those countries around so that Germany does not always need to rely on Russia for gas. What are we saying? It's not, it's, it's, it's commonsensical. They, these are just normal things. And they say, oh, if we do this and we do this, it means this would happen and that will happen. Okay, what do we need? And then we start working around what we need. And they start small and they learn from it, you know? And then they develop. And in 10, 20, 30 years, boom. The whole world is like, whoa, where did that come from? No, they didn't start now. The first wind offshore wind turbine was built 30, over 30 years ago in Denmark. It was just a very tiny thing. Now, one wind turbine is, is powering hundreds or even a thousand or more homes from just within 30 years. Look at Dubai. Look at China in the last 50 years. It's not rocket science. It's just a question of what do we really want? 
And then how do we get it? And then we work together and we achieve it. And we keep trying and we keep trying and we keep trying and we keep trying until it's done. It's not rocket science. Why do they make it feel like these guys are performing magic here? No, you and I are here. We've seen them. We've been in classes with them. We've been in conference with them. We've been in boardrooms with them. These guys are not performing magic. They're normal. Just having a simple governance structure and sticking to, you know, what you that want to do. That is all. That is all. I wanted it's to say something. I wanted to say something because I know um, this can be frustrating. And in, you, you mentioned about uh, colonialism and, you know, and I don't want, I completely understand what you're saying, but I don't want someone listening to this feeling that we are ignoring the impact of colonialism because there are some colonial pacts, there are some colonial contracts that were signed mm -hmm. before that uh, handover was done. You know, you were talking about mm -hmm. Shell, you know, whatever that is in that agreement could have been for 100 years or maybe for 50 years or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But that once we acknowledge that there are still some post-colonial systems in place still in these African countries that are still stifling them, you know, using the francophone countries, former French colonies, for example, mm -hmm. France mm -hmm. is, you know, pretty much putting mm -hmm. these countries on chokehold with regards to their, mm -hmm. you know, monetary system and uh, mm -hmm. all elements of their economy. However, that said, let's assume that these countries are taking fifty percent of these resources. Let's assume this is just a, a, a number I plucked out of my head. Mm. Then that fifty percent that is still left is still being mismanaged uh -huh. by these uh -huh. African countries because out uh -huh. of that fifty percent, forty nine point nine 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 percent will go into personal pockets of these yeah. countries. You know, yeah. when yeah. Abacha died, there's so much money was left outside the country. You know, and yeah. that, that's this is where I always say that it takes two to tango with regards to corruption. You know, David Cameron yeah. was recorded in a hot mic. Uh, yeah. Telling the Queen, oh, you know, I'm speaking with Nigerian president is one of the most corrupt, you know, mm -hmm. countries in the world. Well, no, Nigeria and Afghanistan are possibly the two most corrupt countries. But this particular he's really is actually not corrupt. No, he's trying very hard. They are coming at their own expense. I, I mean, it's going to be slightly possible because it's an anti corruption summit. Everything has to be open. And then apparent reference to the anti corruption conference he's hosting in London later this week. He can be heard telling the Queen that we've got the leaders of some fantastically corrupt countries coming to Britain. Mm -hmm. But most of these leaders looted money ends up in the UK, in America, Switzerland. Of course, of course, of and they're not saying anything. So they're using All it right. to develop these systems here with looted money. But they're not mm -hmm. really holding these people accountable. So I just wanted to I, uh, point that out. Let me also explain another thing. When our corrupt... Uh, I'll give you an example. If I come to squat in your house and I say, oh, you know, um, Suchima, I don't have a house. Can I stay with you for a while? And in staying with you, I'm squatting in one of the rooms. But then after a week or two, you see me drive a, maybe a Range Rover. You know, the first thing that comes to your mind is, uh, you know, is, 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 this, is everything okay? In fact, you would ask me if it belongs to someone else. And I said, no, I just bought that range. The, you know, latest model, you know, 30, 40,000 pounds. You would think I must be mad. Because I'm squatting in your room and driving a Range Rover. Priorities. Priorities. So when 
one of the Nigerian politicians were, was convicted in, in England over almost 20 years ago or 15 to 20 years ago. And it wasn't until recently that four point something million of his money that isn't up to 10% of what the government has was sent to Nigeria. And you could see the Nigerians, you know, federal and state governments scrambling. You're talking about James, uh, James Ibori, former governor yes. of... Uh, yes, okay. yes, yes. The money that he, he that was sent, part of his the money he, he, he took, uh, less than 10% was sent down to the country. And you can see the federal and the state arguing over who gets the money from one man. From one man. So you, when you begin to contextualize these issues, it gets increasingly frustrating that someone who is squatting is now the one showing off. And then you begin to lose even the goodwill. Do you understand me? You begin to lose the goodwill because if you didn't have food and you are driving a Range Rover mm. and squatting in my house and you ask me, I will tell you that I think you must be mad. And you begin to lose goodwill. You lose goodwill and people begin to even take you for a greater ride. Let's, let's call it what it is. People begin to take you for a ride. But this person doesn't have his head walked up properly. So we can trample on him. We can do whatever we want. Um, hey, guys, do you want to go there and you know steal some more diamonds? Do you want to go there and steal some more gold? Do, these guys are crazy people. Don't worry. Give them a few things here and there, and you would have your way. That's what they take you for. And they do that year in, year out. And for decades, we begin to ask ourselves, how did we get here? And the longer it has taken, the more difficult it is for us to come back. So if you look at energy transition and the conversation around it, you now begin to see how, you know, on one hand, we are talking about resource curse. But on the other hand, we are now beginning to deal with energy injustices. With critical mineral for the batteries and all of those things required for energy transition, is just being taken away at with ease from countries in Africa, Congo, and all of that. And so in 20, 30, 40 years time, when we have been blinded and haven't seen, we will start calling on the Chinas and co to help us build wind turbines. Because they've taken yeah. all the resources for our batteries and now we did not get involved so we are now begging them to save us. The same way they are saving with infrastructure in Africa and uh, uh, and railway and all of those things we see us taking loans for. Yeah. So you don't need to go to fight. It's quite troubling. But yeah, it, it's our reality. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned uh, energy transition there uh, briefly. And I believe one of the quickest ways to achieve energy security in you know Africa, in African countries, is... Um, through uh, diversifying the energy mix, you know, increasing the energy mix. And another quick way of doing that is energy transition, transitioning to renewable energy. Uh-huh. And um, so and Africa have like the, the environment for uh-huh. renewable energy to flourish. But I just wanted uh-huh. you to elaborate on, uh, you know, energy transition, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. the, 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 the concept of energy transition. So, so it, let me, let me first of all put it this way. 
And if this is the only thing I say during this interview, I, I am absolutely fine. We are, there's a struggle here to find a balance. How do you explain to a country that has enormous, or a continent that has enormous uh, deposits of fossil fuels, right? And yet is struggling with energy poverty, right? And then dealing with climate change. I saw on the news, I think it was BBC, there was a picture of about six giraffes this week that died from lack of water, drought in Kenya. And they're saying they are losing about 70% of the water in that region. They've lost. So Africa is caught in between, on one hand, dealing with the challenges and the concerns of energy poverty, energy crisis. On the other hand, dealing with the impact of climate change. So I had to begin, I had to investigate this thing even further. If Africa didn't have oil, or if countries in Africa didn't have oil and was dealing with energy poverty, I would I would understand. But we've had oil, some for decades, and are still dealing with energy poverty and energy accessibility. We have oil and gas. We're flaring the gas, blowing it, wasting it. And we're crying of energy poverty. So we need to tell ourselves the truth that the problem is not the lack of the resources. Let's, let's get that clear. For most of these, especially mature oil and gas jurisdictions, the problem is not the absence of the resources, that we are dealing with more fundamental energy or oil governance structures that are not in place to the event that even if they shipped a thousand wind turbines to our ports. Now, as you and I are talking, we will still in 10, 20 years, if those things that need to be solved are not solved, still be dealing with energy poverty. Let's, let's, let's stop kidding ourselves because I've seen a lot of these conversations online and they make it as if we are dealing with oil versus renewable energy. No, that is not what the problem is. We are dealing with fundamental energy governance structures that have failed and have broken down. We are dealing with local content and lack of capacity that we didn't deal with. We are dealing with issues of transparency that we deal with. We are dealing with issue of energy distribution that we didn't deal with. We are dealing with energy corruption that we didn't deal with. And we're dealing with having the wrong political climate that we didn't deal with. So it has nothing to do with energy because you have the energy. I can't be a farmer and be crying out to, to the next door man to say I haven't eaten. He must he, he would think I am mad. He must think that this guy, I think this guy's this guy is mad. He, he has a farm, he has all the food, he has all the crops, but he says he's hungry. I think that guy must be mad. So that on one hand, and then we have to deal with climate change, which is biting Africa seriously. Seriously. 
the drought, the desertification, the flooding, we are seeing it. Heritage sites in Africa being impacted. And to make it worse, we are going to suffer the most. We are seeing migration. You know, we are seeing migration. And because we are more vulnerable, because we don't have sophisticated systems. Some of these countries, if something is going to happen, they can detect it, they can predict it. We don't know when it's going to happen. So when it happens, it's going to have the greatest catastrophe. So why are we fooling ourselves? We are going to be greatly impacted by climate change. The emergency systems, you know, response systems in some of these other countries are so sophisticated. They have the money. Look at what COVID did. I was thinking COVID would teach us a lesson, but look at what COVID did. Look at countries recovering. They have the money. They will borrow. They have goodwill. They will easily borrow their money. You, Africa, you cannot borrow the kind of money they are borrowing. So back to the question, it's, is it an, a renewable energy versus an oil energy problem? No, it's not. And so until we begin to see energy security as national security, it has to be equated in the same way. Energy security as national security climate security as national security, then we need to wake up and then begin to be strategic in our planning. So African countries don't have the luxury of energy transition. We, we, we don't have that. That's a luxury. Um, UK and Norway and all of these countries can play. They can scream energy transition as much as they want. Carbon capture and storage, the conversations have gotten more complicated. Hydrogen, you know, it's, it's getting more complicated. What Africa needs is an energy revolution, not an energy transition. We, we don't have that luxury. We are dying. If I'm dying of hunger, I would, I would have a revolution. I would do everything to strategize, to plan, to build, to train my family. You know, I would do everything in the books. So we don't have the luxury of energy transition. We need an energy revolution because we have an energy crisis. It's not a transition game. Transition is such that you can take your time, you can build the capacity, you can build the knowledge because you already have something on ground. If it's climate change, you have resilient systems to combat it while you are still transitioning, okay? If it's energy, you have the energy already in place. You have a mix already in place. You even have neighbors in Europe that can supply and support you if anything goes wrong. So, you know, it can't be that bad. So you, you can afford to transition. But for Africa, our neighbors are not helpful. Countries within the continent are not helpful. Everybody is trying to survive, survival of the fittest. Are you, are you, are you getting me? So when you're in that situation, in a dire situation, it's not about transition again. It is a revolution that you need to design. So you need a design to design an energy revolution system based on your on your consumption, because you need to control your consumption. You need to control your production, and you need to diversify. You need to have an energy technology revolution as well. 
You need to have an energy technology revolution because that is why countries like China have have gotten 80% of the offshore wind turbine uh, industry from nothing. The technology revolution. They were they are producing everything now. Yeah, and um... so for me, this is for me. These conversations are more than an academic exercise. It's not. I don't have these conversations for fun. When I have my conversations on Europe, you know, it's it's academic. We are exploring. We are we are dealing with these issues, quite important issues. Don't get me wrong. But we 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 are a bit more relaxed when we have this conversation. But for the African continent, it's not an academic. This is this is real life and death. And it makes the difference between life and death. Because if you don't get energy right, you don't get um, development right. If you don't get development right, you don't get the economy right. If you don't get the economy right, you don't get security right. If you don't get the security right, you don't get all the other things that requires uh, the society to work right. And so you still have people going to Libya and risking their lives in the Mediterranean just to come to Europe. Yeah, I mean, you say that we need energy uh, revolution and not energy transition, which I quite understand. And even for energy transition, you also say that we need to build capacity, right, to have energy transition. And um, right now, Nigeria does not have renewable energy infrastructures. Even the grid that we have may not even sustain, you know, additional load to it. And to have renewable energy infrastructure, that requires lots of capital. And Nigeria's security situation in Nigeria is a very dire situation. So how can we attract, you know, uh, investment and personnel to uh, to be able to catapult this, you know? Uh, so I'm afraid it's going to have to be a baby steps, unfortunately. So how do we attract investment and personnel to be able to facilitate this, you know, the infrastructure that is needed? To be able, because it can generate energy, but we still need somewhere to store it. You can generate energy from solar. We still need somewhere to store it. You can generate energy from wind, but we still need grid, national grid, where it has to go through. Even though I'm uh, proposing a decentralized energy, where like a block of you know this village will have their own small hydro mm -hmm. or small wind, which is a way to start. So how do we attract investments and, and personnel considering the state of the country? All right. So I would I will tell you a few things. One, Nigeria has a lot of money. That country is rich. So it has a lot of money to waste. So if we plug the waste, right? Because if if you're having a crisis and you're having a revolution, it can't, it can't continue to be business as usual. You, you know, in that case, you even lose goodwill. You know, if you're saying you're broke and yet you're driving, you're holding on to the Range Rover that you spend the night in and all of that, and then you go to a friend's house and you have lunch and you go to another friend's house and you have dinner, they wouldn't take you seriously. Because you're still driving a 2020 Range Rover. So you begin to cut costs in areas that need to be cut. You plug all the waste in areas that needs to be plugged. And then you may begin to get a bit of goodwill. Say, ah, do you notice that, you know, these guys have cut this, they've cut this. Their senators now earn, you know, way less. The president cut this, cut During COVID, most of us, the, the senior staff from the principal to the senior management team, 
they they had their salary they they volunteered to have their salaries cut in the university of aberdeen in the university of aberdeen they said please can you cut our salary by xyz because with covid we don't know what the numbers will look like we don't know and if you're like whoa they had they, they volunteered to have their salaries cut and that was a gesture that demonstrated that even those at the top are willing to make sacrifices so if we start seeing all these waste being clogged, all the excess funds going to wherever they go to being, being capped and, and, and clogged as well, and then some of the funds from, you know, these subsidies we've been making so much about that we really don't know where it is going, being, you know, put into other channels, we may be able to get ahead in, and you, these are things that you can have a trajectory and say, oh, if we do this, do this, do this, we will save X, Y, Z, and we will be able to put it in here. And people will see is again, back to the issue of trust and transparency that I started talking about with people would see it. Now there are other principles like energy democracy. So you need to democratize your energy system. And these are things that people are doing in Scotland, doing in Germany, doing in the US. You democratize your energy system in such a way that local communities begin to feel empowered to develop their own energy infrastructure. I remember when I was in Nigeria, um, you know, when the transformer was bad, we contributed to buy, we contributed to, you know, we were taking responsibility. And that's even how some, you know, jurisdictions are operating. Even security, you see neighborhoods create their own you know, neighborhood watch, neighborhood security, even when there are bad roads, they come together, they contribute and they build the roads. So it's not impossible to democratize your energy system in such a way that people would actually start owning their own energy sources. They already spent so much buying, you know, independent generators and all of these things. So we could channel those resources and give people a, a, a system that would, you know, if a community think that they would be able to raise the money to build a wind turbine that would power you know 1000 homes in a certain way and they would do it and we are seeing it being done here and if they feel empowered they may even have access and sell to others and it will create jobs and it will solve the energy security concerns so you would see that some of the very wealthy people in maybe lecky or in some of these other you know highbrow areas would democratize themselves and build the system and then they don't need the energy that they were ordinarily getting before and then it then becomes available for other people who may not be able to democratize and then that's how you try to balance the system here and there it will get you somewhere and the research can be done to say if we democratize the system how much can we get from here how much can we get from here how much can we get from there and you would see that in five ten years you will be heading somewhere i'm not saying it will solve all the problems but it will be part of the solution. And once people see that, once you know these global financing financial institutions see that genuinely, they may begin to say, wow, these guys are onto something here. But if they don't see anything, if you're living still living business as usual and making all the noise, and nobody's saying stop oil. Are you guessing me? They, some people argue as though um countries in the West are saying, Oh, don't you? Nobody can control what you do with your oil. Nobody. Yes. So better these guys take it out. Just don't be silly. 
don't nobody yes they might decide not to fund it they might decide not to you know they have the right to do what they want with their money sort yourself look inward you you said that look inward it's like when they put a ban on on, on nigeria and this and, and of course you know there's there's a concern on equities and all those things but that should remind you that nobody gives it nobody cares in reality you can die for all they care so solve your problems get up get up yeah and i always you know i'm always skeptical when it comes to regulatory uh policy solutions with regards to you mm -hmm. know in the nigerian context because mm -hmm. law doesn't really mean that much you know but i was wondering all these solutions you're proffering all these solution you uh solutions you're listing now whether that can be tackled or enforced or facilitated through policy uh, solutions, or should it be like a grassroots movement, activism that, to, to force the government to take action? You know, look, we're going to start having a drought. We're going to start having, uh, you know, desertification. You know, you have to do something, you know, with regards to the environment. Not just the environment. While we're trying to do something for the environment, we're also diversifying the energy mix. We're also you know, creating energy security. We're also creating national security, as you referred it to national security. So how, which way do we approach this? Policy solutions or grassroots movement? It has to be everything. I mean, if you looked at COP, you would see that, you know, a lot of the drive, you know, around climate change is being pioneered by young people, local communities. Some of them, you know, nobody has heard of, you know, Communities living in the coastline, you know, all of those things. You could you could see that, um, you know, from 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 COP, we, we we saw that quite strongly, and we heard those voices. And and one of the, the one of the strongest speech from COP was given by uh, this lady who happens to be, I think, the, the prime minister for Barbados. You know, and one of the strongest speeches was 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 given by her. Hi, if I'm right, and and you, so you could, and that's a, I mean, that's a country with uh, barely a few hundred thousand uh, uh, people. It's not, uh, you know, a, a two hundred million people like Nigeria or or the U.S. or most of it. it was. So we are seeing a very strong movement from local participation, and that's informed by this broader energy justice. Um, you know, discussions that, that that we are beginning to see. We are seeing young people, you know, drive climate change. We are seeing NGOs sue multinational companies in the Netherlands, in Germany, in you know, in, in, in the UK, driving the conversation. So it's not going to be this or this. But it will send us back to what I started from. Every government is based on trust and sincerity. If people have trusted the government to do certain things, they've given them that power to do those things. And a government should feel responsible and responsive to those people. That's not something law does for you. It's on the basis of that trust that you didn't have, you know, a legal system, you didn't have, you know, elections and all of those things. If those things were not there, then you don't have all these other things. Now, it may not be elections. Dubai is not a democratic, the UAE is not a democratic system in the sense that we know it. You know, some a lot of 
countries that are doing well is not really about, but is about being responsive and understanding and recognizing the trust that has been imposed or posed on, on, on government, whatever that government is. Okay? So we then need to check ourselves and ask ourselves fundamental questions of, do we think that this government is responsible and responsive on the basis of the trust we've handed over? If the answer is in the affirmative, and then we, you know, we go ahead. If it's not, then what do we do about it? So it's not a one-size-fits-all or this is one solution. We will need to do everything within our power. And you remember, law can only do so much. There are things law can do, there are things law cannot do. Law has its own limitations. And in fact, law is basically an instrument of social engineering that makes society work as it should. It's not the reverse. So it means that society has accepted that this should happen, and then law is put in place so that it reminds people of what the you know what that agreement was. It's like a contract. You and I need to first agree that we are going to have this meeting, we are going to have this conversation, and we're going to do this for X, Y, Z number of minutes and cover a number of issues. We needed that before maybe if we wanted to put a contract together, we go ahead and put the contract. The contract is law. The law, the, law, the thing had already been agreed even before you know, we put the, 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 the contract to paper. So that's the role of law. So we don't need to, we, we need to be mindful of, you know, are we asking too much of, 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 a, of, of a regime or a principle that can only do so much? Law will say don't kill, but people who will kill will still kill. But, you know, the law is there to kind of, you know, um, resolve that in, in a number of ways. So I think fundamentally people within the African continent need to start looking, you know, at their leaders. And again, this, I repeat, these leaders do not come from the sky. They come from within, you know, the system. They come from you and I. They were living on our streets. They were living, you know, they were next door neighbors. They were not too far away. And we need to ask ourselves, you know, what happened? What what has what, what went wrong in such a way that these people have now become, you know, gods onto themselves? And wow. on that basis, every other thing, fabric of society, within the energy structure, within the governance structure, is failing. Throughout, throughout the course of this uh, conversation, you mentioned uh, gas flaring. And um, according to PwC, you know, Nigeria ranks in the top 10 gas flaring countries with uh, 7.4 billion cubic feet of gas flared in 2018. So I just wanted you to elaborate a little bit what is gas flaring is all about and uh, what's the purpose of it because it's pretty much a waste in other words yeah so um gas flaring in itself is done you know again these are this this is large, largely technical but you know gas flaring is not unusual during the course of operations for safety reasons and a number of other factors companies may flare all right, um, but its structure is regulated. You cannot flare, you know, till infinity at will. Um, you flare in such a way only to the level that is prescribed for safety reasons and and all of that. So they might need to flare just to, you know, let go of some of the excesses for a particular reason. 
but systems, advanced systems have designed these things to, you know, utilize the gas. So you see gas reutilization policies and schemes and regimes um, to ensure that the, the gas is re reutilized, is reinjected and is used to power, you know, homes and heat homes and provide energy and, and all of those things. Now for the country, for countries that flare gas at will, um, it's because on one hand, the penalties for flaring within the regulation is, is almost nothing. And so it makes more economic sense in a way to flare the gas and pay the compass and pay the penalties because the laws were written, God knows when, um, you know, back in time when, you know, the, 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 the thought that was uh, the way to go. And so it no longer serves as a deterrent um, because it's, it's more expensive to set up the infrastructure um, to, to re-inject uh, the gas. And then, of course, we all know that that now significantly com contributes to uh, um, em emissions and, and all of those things. So um, the, the whole idea is that hopefully, hopefully um, countries that flare will begin to redesign gas uh, re reutilization policies and, and regulations in order to limit um, gas flaring and again, increase penalties for that. But you see, it's one thing to say all of these things um, if, you know, we're working or looking at a system that is um, effective or is designed as, as it should be. Um, because when you have issues of um, conflict of interest and the regulator um, not having the capacity, the expertise, the knowledge to regulate some of these issues, then you find out that the system is the regime is captured. So that leads you to what we call regulatory capture, in which in which case the regulated is more powerful than the regulator. And so, um, you know, if he doesn't have the capacity and he's dependent on the companies to provide, you know, that uh, uh, maybe the, you, the materials or whatever he needs to be able to determine, you know, how much gas is fled, how much, you know, all of those things. If he doesn't have the capacity to identify those things, then how will he even enforce it in the first place? So, you know, that's what happens with, with gas flaring. So, I mean, I have a a, a, a friend um, who had done extensive research, Dennis Otiochu, on, on gas flaring in, in Nigeria and in Niger Delta region. Um, but by and large, summarily, that's, that's the whole idea behind um, gas flaring. Okay, so um, obviously you've you've seen a lot of um, contracts with regards to oil and gas, uh, you know, um, extraction. You know, whether it's a production sharing agreement or service um, agreement. So I was wondering what roles uh, oil companies can play, you know, currently in Nigeria or other African countries in uh, energy transition. Should there be like a clause? in the uh, production sharing agreement? Because I think you mentioned something with regards to the Norwegian uh, Ten Commandments, where they said, you know, investing in other sectors, you're using money to uh -huh. invest in somewhere else. Should there be a clause in that production sharing agreement to say, okay, 5% of your profit should go to R&D research and development with regards to renewable energy in the country? Things like that, could that be I mean, feasible? I mean, Production sharing contracts already have those instruments. They okay. have already have those clauses for local comp lo local content development and all of those things. And some of the 
you know, some of them even have clauses where um, the companies will be required to build, you know, schools or training colleges and all of those things, or train X, Y, Z number of people within, you know, a particular amount of time. It's all dependent on what you negotiate. Any a contract is such that you can put anything, anything inside it. It's it's a contract. It's you and I. It's what are we willing to do? Um, and if you say a certain percentage of our profit. You know, considering that, you know, some of the countries may have their own national oil companies and may be part of the joint venture agreements and all of those things, then it means they are equally contributing as well. So if you say a certain percentage of your con of your of your profit should be channeled towards, you know, developing um other um energy, you know, structures and all of those things, of course. Um, but we're already seeing that with the companies. I mean, you're seeing, you know, start oil go from start oil to equine, or we're seeing you know, total go from, you know, go to total energies. We're seeing um, boards of high profile companies, including Exxon, being diversified or re redesigned to take into account these same issues of energy transition. So it wouldn't be completely out of place um, for that if it's not already happening within that uh, uh, regime. So it, it's inevitable and we're already seeing oil companies making that shift, making that move, not completely abandoning oil, but they are diversifying their portfolio. And that brings me to the point that there is an economic argument around, and if they were going to be losing money, they would not do those things. There is an economic argument around this issue. So, you know, when some people make a false about, oh, you know, the West are trying to direct us and tell us what to do. No, this is as much an economic argument as it is for anything else. So where is the money? Where will the money be? And we're seeing uh, 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 companies, Tesla and all of those companies, changing the narrative and changing the game. So people are following the money. And if the money is in diversifying and developing other um, energy sources alongside what you traditionally have, then you're going to do that. And if everybody did that, then there would be a balance. We would be fine. Some will do it more than others, but at least we would be there will be a certain level of... Uh, engagement in the process okay i thought we end on this question like uh you know because i was wondering you know energy transition in african countries or africa as a uh, you know as a continent whether it will be much better to do this on inter-country basis or even on a continental basis than each individual country is trying to you know come up with some research and development or come up with some form of structure you know I'm thinking what will be the best way forward? Is it to do something on a continental approach? You know, maybe let's say, let's have mm -hmm. a, you know, a massive yeah. uh, solar yeah. farm in, in, in Morocco, mm -hmm. you know, or something like that that can... I mean, I mean, that there, there would be, there would be an opportunity because again, because of how the countries are so uh, uh, structured, um, you know, and, and we saw that with uh, maritime boundaries. So when, um oil resources are straddling you know different countries so you know um kenya and somalia um nigeria and, and cameroon the you know and you know the bakasi peninsula rift all of those things when you have oil straddling two different countries we have something called the joint development agreement where they sit together and say well we've got this oil in your side and my side is there any way we can design a joint development agreement I have a, a joint development zone of that area 
and then we both issue licenses to a company and the company pays both of us you know um our share and we both rather than you taking from your own side and i taking from my own side and because of how the it's designed and in the same way too there's the potential that um there would be opportunity to design a renewable energy or or, or infrastructure that may cover you know certain areas the same way you would have road networks that will take you from nigeria to ghana or Benin or any of these places even if they can be you know you can have borders um um for 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 those sort of things but if you had say you're developing and going offshore um and the the technologies are advancing and all of that and you need to do it within an area and you cannot do it in one area no you there, there's an opportunity for a regional approach to to these things absolutely no doubt and again the regional approach or an african approach provides a broader framework either in terms of the financing either in terms of the support schemes all of those things but i think by and large individual countries will need to take certain responsibility um, but because we all have different capacity it may be that it may be better for a big country to build the infrastructure and then support you know all the other smaller countries and things like that who may not have the resources or capacity so it's, it's that kind of things like the way you know you would you would first rent a house before you buy one you know that kind of thing so if if the infrastructure can be built in nigeria and they can supply electricity like they do in some cases even now to neighboring countries and there's a african framework or a regional or a sub-regional framework that enables them to do that by all means you know let's just do all we can africa internationally if as we can as we see it in uh, some of these international instruments regionally um or from a continental basis if as we can and then sub-regional regional as well as national so it has to be you know, every level and even local, local community, even within the national, it should be up to the grassroots. So it's all is covering the entire spectrum. And hopefully with that, so if we're able to galvanize that level of, of engagement, that level of support, that level of contribution at all these levels, you would see that you would be reaching the, the, the sort of the, the, the targets that are intended. Because if you democratize the system, it means that people are, at the local level, able to make use of their resources, contribute and, and develop their own energy infrastructure and power. Um, at the state level, the same thing is happening. States are also, you know, beginning to design and build and all of that. At the national level, things are also happening. By the time you put all that together, you know, we will be getting somewhere. And that's why, like in the EU, you have the EU Green Deal. You know, that's the EU designing an EU right framework that would be able to be harmonized so that if a company comes into that continent, it's it's working under one umbrella or one framework and it's not going here and it's a different deal and it goes there it's a different deal and it goes here it's a different deal and all of that so you have a fragmented regime in that kind of process they have something that provides them some level of uniformity and consistency and hopefully um you know it does re, you, you know you achieve the sort of results that uh, one envisaged dr eddie wifa uh, thank you very much for coming on the the podcast Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Um, I didn't know the time was going so fast, but you know, when, when you start this conversation, you get you just get sucked in. Yeah. But, but thank you. It's, I, I appreciate uh, all, all the effort and, and, and I thank you for, for inviting me.